0: Voices
1: Radio. Voices Radio. Voices. Voices Radio. Voices radio. Hello, you've just tuned in, you're tuned into uh, Voices Radio, um, and hello and welcome to I Was Just Wondering with me, Tom Salmon, the show that dives into music, film and games and everything else in between. Um, my guest on this <coughs> week's episode is the founder and managing director of Hyper Studios, Camilla Cole, um, so for people who aren't familiar with your work as a creator, who are you and what do you do?
0: Uh, so I currently, um, as you say, I founded Haifa uh, Studios and basically what we do is matchmake creatives with uh, empty commercial properties for free space in return for a public programme to regenerate the high street.
1: Perfect. Okay, so I have four topics of conversation that we're going to kind of cover. And the first one being the beginning. So I want to start almost day zero. So what can you tell me about your 16-year-old self looking out into the world and where did you see your place in it?
0: Um, well, um, basically I have a doctor as a father and a mother that was an artist and my mother wanted me to be a doctor and my father wants me to be an artist so, <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow, so, yeah. Yeah. so i was trying to be like bit something in between and i mm. think basically the uh, sort of art, art career sort of took off from there so i did history of art at like a level okay and basically that's where it all started
1: right and um just thinking about that, uh, like at that sort of like age, I was definitely at a very sort of defined sort of like career path that this is what you were engaged in. And was that partly to do with your mother, or your father's influence? Because it sounds like there's very different sort of like two polarities that were kind of like pulling you in two different like directions. Yeah. There,
0: like, well, I think um, they both have said to me, just do what you enjoy the most. So yeah. I think I've always been drawn to art artists. Like I've always been a you know, painter, but realised right. actually I was a rubbish artist. So I just okay. wanted to support artists instead. Right. So yes, and also my mum had loads of artistic friends, and so yeah, so the idea was just to go to the culture industry no matter what.
1: Okay, (laughs) Um, and then just sort of touching your mum a little bit, what what sort of art did she do?
0: Oh, she did very much like figurative, like oil paintings, that sort of thing. She wasn't like a professional artist, Um, but she was just like, there was a big sort of artistic community where we grew up, sort of Brighton.
1: Oh, okay, right, Um, yes, of course.
0: So yeah, so so that was sort of how the uh, sort of interest in the arts came about.
1: To begin with. Okay so just drawing in a little bit more detail about that can you remember as a teenager or young adult being obsessed with a particular band film or artist which really influenced your ger- direction in life
0: um well it didn't inspire hyper studios but i think my aesthetic taste has always sort of erred on the gothic okay
1: great yeah Uh,
0: so i love things like the crow as a film or nine inch nails and that sort of stuff so i think very much my taste in art like i love francis bacon like Mm. at the time i used to love damien Hirst. now i think he's an amazing businessman yeah um so that's that sort of inspired my aesthetic taste but obviously my aesthetic taste has nothing to do with the charity now but it did inspire cold projects quite a lot my curatorial project
1: so just Referencing Nine Inch Nails, um, The Crow, like, the Gotham, it's <laughs> counterculture. Um, it's going into the sort of system. What really sort of fe- appealed to you? Because what is interesting to me is, like, how people develop a sense of taste and what they become, what they gravitate towards. So yeah. uh, there was any particular thing about that that you...
0: I, yeah, I think, to be honest, you sort of tapped onto something there. Mm. Um, so, basically, I think you're right, totally right about the anti-establishment. I think I grew up in quite... I went to a very strict school, mm-hmm. and I'm not somebody that likes authority very much. Right. And I think... You know, whether it's, like, my early career or my taste in music or even men or anything, I like people that are different right. to the norm. You know, yeah. I like eccentrics, I like, you know, rule breakers, and I'm interested in that sort of a philosophy.
1: OK, and then... What was it about? Um, I guess like traditional forms of that like communication, like art oh, and things, that you maybe perhaps found that didn't sort of jive with you so much. Because I guess like if we were in opposition of some to something, what were the kind of things that you were that you det- so, detested? Is yeah, that yeah, right? you're
0: totally right. So I'm really against um, what I call, and no offence to anybody that is this person, but I don't like the idea of sort of Brenda painting cats. You know, okay. for me, I like things that are very, like, self-expressive, all about that person and what they're trying to convey. Mm-hmm. And just, like, basic artwork, for me, is fine if you're going to do it for a decorative gallery, but I like yeah. things that trigger something in you that you wouldn't normally have triggered.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, so that's... That. yeah sort of provocative it makes you think I think sometimes the best art that I sort of see is art that I actually don't like but it presses against yeah. my own there's
0: nothing worse than something that you walk away from and you don't have an opinion mm. on so like you know love or hate again Damien Hirst yeah. you know he makes you feel something it starts a conversation you know yeah. I'm using him as like a, a basic example but it's the same with all good artists at mm-hmm. the time at like the avant-garde everybody caused like a, like a shock about that Yeah. Um, so yeah so I think it's really interesting how those things that were sh- you know shocked initially then become part of the mm. the norm and so like how you maintain a level of the shock and the new is really important
1: yeah and it's funny you mentioned Damien Hirst so I actually went to the Cogosian Gallery just off Britannia Road where you can actually see it's not Leviathan but it's like the big white shark not just the Leviathan (laughs) but you can see like the cow with the head chopped off and Mm -hmm. and I because it's something I sort of grew grew up when I was in my adolescence I saw the the sensation exhibition on TV but obviously I was too young to go Mm. but when you actually go see it and what's sort of exciting about it is the actual scale of seeing that artwork I mean now it's just sort of seen as a sort of price tag but at at the very beginning it was seen as being quite well, shocking I idea. think
0: there's also something really interesting that happened after that, which is like the socioeconomic shift. Mm. So basically when I started working in a gallery in King's Cross around the corner, um, yeah. that was like pre-financial crash. Mm. So it was all very much like, you know, hedge fund backed, investing loads of money into stuff, making it as big and powerful and important as ever and like champagne, blah, blah, blah. But post-financial crash, I think it became very um, crass mm. to be seen yeah. to be doing that. Mm. So you had a massive swerve towards like paintings. Yeah. You know, paintings that weren't like in your face and like performance art which is like obviously cheaper to transport and this sort of stuff Mm -hmm. so it's just whether or not galleries had to do it or collectors had to buy it that became the thing that people wanted to because you couldn't be seen to be enjoying that sort of like gagacious you know sort of like visceral art anymore yeah
1: precisely so just drawing back um to your early years do you have any well you spoke about your family but do you have any friends that encouraged and supported your interest in the arts and the wider creative fields growing up
0: you know what? I'd actually say no. Okay, right. <laughs> I mean, yeah. you know, aside for the fact, I was quite good at like art as a kid. Right. I mean, you know, you like to, you know, it's good. It's one of those things. If you do a good painting, people do praise you for it. Mm-hmm. Right. So that yeah. was, um, that was the sort of drive. It's like, it's good to perform and get something back from your audience. Yeah. But no, in reality not. I just enjoyed it so much and the, I loved what it made me do. I remember going to the Serpentine Gallery when I was a kid. right? And I think there's a study that says like if you get taken to galleries then it's more likely that you'll have a career in the creative arts of as course. you get older. Yeah. Um, so a friend of the family took me and it, it was Marie Mori that I saw at the Serpentine. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. And it totally blew my mind. It mm. was just like, what on earth is this? It was like a totally imagined landscape which you couldn't normally ever yeah. even begin to see. So that's, that's, that triggered something very early on.
1: Okay, so in terms of your um, friendship group at that time, you were very much like an outlier.
0: <laughs> I would say so. I mean, like, the secondary school I went to is very academic, whereas all, like, the creatives went mm. to the local art college, or they went to, like, the other school, which is more about creativity. And so, you know, it, I had to basically find a niche, which was academic, i.e. history of art, right. slash which is academic oh, and
1: cre- creative. Right, yeah. Find something in the middle. Okay, interesting um and just going back to this sort of very early years in terms of like our experience it's always good to have someone that we can bounce back for uh, bounce back these eyes back back and forth to feel mm -hmm. that we're not so isolated i mean did you have anybody that you could potentially speak to your interest at all maybe they weren't artistically inclined but somebody you could engage with
0: no i mean genuinely like um you know i had you know Basically, no, not really. I mean, mm. art wasn't like until I became like 17, 18, and basically university. Right. Like, I wasn't really focused on it like that. Okay. Um, but it was very much, I very much decided early on that I wasn't good enough. I'm like a perfectionist, I like to win at things. Right. Um, so, you know, when you realise there's so many artists and they're so brilliant mm. and you can never, you could never be better than them. You know, you have to find a way of, like, laterally think your way around it and see what else would satisfy you.
1: Yeah, of course, and of hence course.
0: Hence why the career and the practical side of right. art making.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, which brings me nicely on to I think you sort of briefly mentioned it there, how old were you when you decided you wanted to pursue a professional career in the arts? And what, again, like, what kind of people, maybe not sort of friends, but did you see anybody actually working in the industry, uh, male or female, that you thought, oh, I aspire, that's what I aspire to kind of, like, be...
0: Yeah, I mean, I really wish there there was that. I mean, oh. I think until I went to university, that wasn't mm. even an issue. All I knew is that I couldn't do anything else. Right. Um, and all I knew is that hell or high, you know, hell or high water, I had to be in that industry. So, yeah. you know, you do what you can. You like beg for jobs. You mm. work for free. Become a slave <laughs> Yeah, Yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. you do everything you possibly can to mm. get into that world. But I did it because I needed to understand it. Because much like we pointed out earlier. I needed to know the rules to break them. Right, right, right. Because yeah, there yeah. are rules. Because it's mm-hmm. a very unregulated market, which we'll touch on later. I'm sure. Yeah. Um, but there are ways and means. I think it could be better and could be fixed. Mm-hmm. Um, so I hope in my own small way that I'm doing part of that now. Right, but I needed right. to learn the industry in order to understand what what was the niche to yeah, get
1: into. Of course. So. Um, I guess just my final thing on this sort of top, uh, topic. which' am going to book it by by asking you, sorry, bookend by, bookend it by asking you about your higher education experience. Um, so you did a BA in history of Arts, mm-hmm. studying art, philosophy, mm-hmm. French, Italian, and Spanish at UCL. Yeah. Uh, graduating in two thousand and seven, and then you did a master of fine arts, studying creating, if I can say that word properly. <laughs> um, at Goldsmiths, graduating in two thousand and seventeen. So there's a ten year gap. Yeah. So. What sort of creative and professional impact did um, did it have on your career studying at these two very well-regarded uh, institutions?
0: Okay, so obviously two very different institutions, very far apart, and there's reasons for that. Mm. Um, I went to UCL... Because I, you know, growing up in like Eastbourne and Brighton, I needed to get into the city as soon as possible. I had no interest in going to a sort of collegiate university. Mm-hmm. Um, and I needed to get to culture very, very quickly. Hence right. why well, never let me leave London. <laughs> um, but yeah, so UCL, I mean, History of Art was an amazing experience. And obviously yeah. it gives you a really good standing, but it doesn't give you anything practical. Yeah. So you can't suddenly go, right, I'm going to work in a gallery after you've done that. You know, you know, what I really believe they should have is like work placements. Uh, for at least a year, like not send you off to Italy, but actually send you off into a gallery. Like if you're going to do unpaid internships, go and actually learn the practicalities of what's a loan, what's a consignment agreement, like how do you transport work, what's a safety... Um, So basically after that then I would started working as an intern for ages Mm -hmm. and after I think we'll go into it, after doing that for about 10-15 years I went back to um, Goldsmiths and Goldsmiths was really interesting as an experience because it was a two-year-long course, it was a Masters. And lots of stuff I learned. But the first thing I learned, A, I was like a mature student going back. Hmm. And I realized that the people that I was surrounded by were... So insanely brilliant, you know. Like the younger generations are so amazing, mm. um, and they're so um, you know brilliant in so many ways. But also, a lot of them never done a show. Right. So you know, you're sitting there with all this practical experience, but you know, but then there's like all these amazing academics, and I was like, I can't compete with academia either. So right. much like I don't want to be an artist, I realized I don't want to be an academic. Okay. So the first thing that Goldman said, they were like, "You're never going to make any money out of curating," and I was like, "Right. Well, in that case, I'll do a year of this and I quit." Right.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I
0: took that seven grand that you're going to have, and yeah. I invested it in starting my own company Cold Projects
1: yeah oh great um so just touching just last just touching on the because we did touch on it briefly about the idea of you just mentioned that university allows you to do work in certain aspects of a particular subject but mm-hmm. not actually gives you the skills that, that people want at the end of it um, would you say is there much point I mean I guess there is a point to it but what is the real tangible benefit of going to a prestigious our uh, institution, like goldsmiths. Um...
0: Well, goldsmiths. I mean, don't get me wrong. Like mm. you know, basically, Cole Projects was born from that. Like they mm. taught you to be responsive, mm. and I think the best thing about being like a solo practitioner is that you can look at the zeitgeist and you can do a show about mm. it immediately like someone like the Tate yeah would have a eight week eight you know a whole year in mm. lead-in time mm-hmm. so actually by the time around that show comes around it's not relevant anymore right right and so like that's why actually the very cool immersive immersive like emerging shows are the most mm-hmm. interesting because they're touching on stuff that's right now right right it's not like you know it's about practicality things so okay. it was always in response to stuff and it made you think about things in a certain way mm. it's also the network that you get right you know like you know I know now you know from got you know from history of arts a Tate curator yeah you know this sort of thing and then you know now from goldsmiths i know like a curator in ballet and and, you know so you do develop a network which stays with you forever and when you go to like venice Biennale, you see your old friends you know right right. yeah (laughs)
1: yeah cool cool um so just moving on to the next topic the art market so a bit of a loaded question in your opinion what is the biggest misconception about the contemporary art market in
0: 2022 oh it's such a broad question and it's one of my favorite subjects but i think one of the the to take the question really literally, mm. the misconception for me is that people that are outside the art world think that the art world isn't for them.
1: Right? Right. Maybe, they, yeah. There's
0: always this whole yeah. idea of like, oh god, the oh, art. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, but actually, what you quickly quickly realise once you're in it is actually the key to understanding the art world is just having like belief in your own opinion right so yeah, if you yeah. like an artwork and you, you say great i like it but if you think it's rubbish 100 mm. percent it's rubbish like mm. there's nothing telling you what's right or wrong mm. and i think this is a lesson that you know the general public and people that are not into art need to learn because it's not you don't get it you're yeah. not stupid for not understanding it yeah it's, it's you know you just need to believe in what you think about it and have that opinion
1: and do you think part of the problem is like a lot of work now tends to be conceptual
0: I think conceptual art. You know, I struggle with conceptual art as well. Um, you know, like I, you know, I'm very much like I said, very visceral, and I like immersive installations and things that basically slap you around the face. But yeah, I think there's an element of that. And I think if it's just boring to look at, which a lot of conceptual stuff can be, yeah, and um, then people are going to think, well, why should I even bother reading this thing about it? You know, like I don't like reading press releases when I go around art shows. Like I need to feel, yeah, an interest sparks, and then potentially read the press release.
1: Yeah, yeah, precisely. So I feel I think sometimes the most direct art especially when you walk into uh, i guess that like most recent reference to me um would be the gagosian gallery and you mm-hmm. see a shark in a tank and it's sort of like there you don't need to read about that it, because like, it's all it's all it's it's real yeah like there's nothing required yeah um exactly. so i just want to sort of touch on a, a, a point as well it's sort of centralizer centralization versus decentralization mm. and that's something that i've read um in in regards to research in this interview, that you're very keen on decentralising the art market.
0: (laughs) Yes. I mean, absolutely. And I think, um, you know, I know that you've got an interest in, like, blockchain. And I do think, I mean, we could do a whole hour session on NFTs and, you know, I'm not going to go down that route. But I don't believe right now that they're actually very useful. Um, But I think they have potential in the future to be incredibly useful. But the problem Mm. is, like, how transparent does the art market want to be? Mm-hmm. You know, like how much do you actually want every artist has put all their information about every single artwork on it? Yeah. Um, and also what would that actually do to the art market? Mm-hmm. Because the whole thing is that everything is fiddled. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes, <laughs> you know? it's very true. Um, yeah. You know, everybody like bumps up their prices, everybody like, sort of like, not everybody, you know, but it's it's common practice and it's just how you regulate your market. Um, and that's a very important aspect of the art world. So decentralisation is super important. I think in terms of like things like Haifa, which is what we'll yeah. talk about shortly. Yeah, sure. For me, it's very much about not being the gatekeeper. Like the, I think a major problem with the art world is gatekeepers. Right. Like who's to say that just because you've got millions of pounds and you can afford a space on you know in the middle of Mayfair yeah. that you can dictate what somebody should see.
1: Yeah. And also, what the artist gets, because I guess there's this. Um, i watched a documentary about it, um, I won't go too deep into it, but there's definitely like skullduggery and the sort of dark arts between the gallerist, the artist, and the person who's buying, and you have was art advisors <laughs> and like bidding, bidding things up, and then yeah. and there's nothing transparent. It's called an art market, but there's the only market, I think, that I can think of where nothing is transparent whatsoever. You don't actually know how much something's worth. Well, I think in a way. it's. Again,
0: such a broad subject, Mm. and I think Vice did a a friend of mine did a a video, I think on a film about it recently about the different things in the art market and sort of. Uh, opaqueness of it yeah. um, but I think the gallery system in many ways when it's done properly is mm. astonishing like for example White Cube or only the big boys like Gigo, as you mentioned earlier yeah, yeah. you know the way they look after their artists is, is amazing you know is they almost you know they give somebody a artist liaison that predicts the next five years of their life they have a proper career manager yeah um, and like all well, their work is stored and all this stuff mm. and you know they're guaranteed sales and all mm. this stuff so you know when it's done properly I think yeah. it, there's you can't beat it but I think right. the problem is when it's not done properly mm. then you you know think about it this way if you've got 12 artists and I'm expected to like pump out these shows every year and if you've got a gallery in London you're expecting your new audience for every art show it doesn't necessarily happen
1: right yeah, you know yeah. so
0: that's why I think you know things that move about can actually get more interest mm-hmm. like if there's something random in which I'll probably go and check it out like I want to yeah. see a new part of town like, I want to see new artists mm-hmm. um so I do think there are definite things that could be changed in the way
1: that's currently set up
0: or like, there's room for other models right I mean. of
1: course yeah um so, just galloping towards the creation of Hyper Studios, you started your career as a sales representative at Artnet in 2006. What was a typical day's work like there, starting out?
0: Um, so, it really wasn't that glamorous, but basically it was really good for many reasons, but the main one was I had to have an understanding of all the galleries in the UK. Right. And that meant researching them, finding out what, they, um, what artists they had, what they sold, and basically calling them and saying, please buy advertising on Artnet. Right, right. But, okay. I mean, yeah. so that was like... That was a very good precursor to doing like press, mm-hmm. where you have to just basically cold call people. And it was a horrific experience, but it makes you kind of hardened right. to sort of like telling people what you want and like maybe offering them something. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so that was an invaluable experience for that, but mainly to get an understanding about what the art world was
1: like at that time. And were people kind of sceptical, Because skeptical, I should say, because uh, it was called Artnet in 2006. And I guess like, the art world's adoption of the internet... Um, was there much was there quite a lot of resistance to that at the time well
0: I think even now Artnet is like one of the the things that people always use it for the auction results so you're talking about sort of lack of transparency but the one place where you can actually find out what things were sold for I mean that's Artnet you can type it in and find out you can predict how much something's worth you can Mm. value stuff this that and the other artists can put their stuff on it um, doesn't mean that the auction results weren't in some way sort of fiddled with again, but it doesn't of mean course. that you know it does yeah. mean you've got a ledger of like what things have been going up and down in
1: value for. And I guess like just uh, one thing I would sort of draw attention to maybe is off-putting is the sheer amount of the very extreme top end of the art market which can be put off put, uh, put the general public off. And when you see a work of art that maybe you don't understand, you don't really respond to, sells for hundreds, and hundreds of millions of pounds, <laughs> and you can feel like why, what, what is the point? Yeah. Um,
0: Yeah, but often those artists, I mean, you know, often those artists have had a very, very long career and, like, they have been supported by the biggest institutions and, you know, their value, you know, at auction might be inflated, Mm -hmm. but, you know, typically there is a reason why they've got there in the first place. Unless you're talking about things like art funds. Now, art funds are, like, a totally different thing. Oh, okay. Um, And art funds basically can sort of, like... You know i'm not going to go into names and stuff but you can basically rig a market to a certain extent you can right. basically say right let's get this artist's career and then we can just put it into this place or this show and like basically put up its price by association of being in different galleries right, right, right. or museums okay. and you know eventually sell it all off for a certain price and you can say five years later that you've inflated the price by 10 times so that's that's one known strategy right. but okay. this is one of of many known yeah. strategies right um
1: <laughs> So just bringing it back, I guess, to, to your career, um, so what fueled your ambition to move from a sales representative all the way to a manager at the Gazelli Art Gallery in 2017? And did you hit any professional glass ceilings along the way? So many.
0: So okay. many. So many. I mean, so many. Um, so, yeah, so Artnet actually led into All Visual Arts. So the same guy that employed me for that then went on to start the gallery in King's Cross. Right. And that was amazing because we did loads of shows and, you know, like huge exhibitions. And like I love all the artists. I'm still friends with all the, uh, the staff members there. And I'm actually seeing some tonight, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was like a bit of a family for about 10 years. Then I went and moved to the Dan Juma collection, which was like buying and selling work and putting it into big pop-up shows in central London. And then, yeah, then I went back to Gazelli Art House and then moved on from there to do curating by myself. But the glass ceilings, loads. Yeah. Um, one, there's an expression called gallerina. Have you heard this? No, I've not. No. So gallerinas, yeah, are typically like coyote uglies. Like if you go to Gagosian or go to these big galleries, they're just very, very hot, very wealthy women that are sitting at the desks. Oh, uh, okay, right. Yeah, like, makes that's sense. what a gallerina is, right? So okay. basically, if you're not that hot, if you're not that rich, if you are getting old, loads
1: of uh, ceilings. Oh wow! Yeah, really? yeah, that's a natural terminology. Um, that's something I'd never even that thought about or come into contact with yeah wow. but I
0: mean also there's a certain point where it's like unless you have a vast amount of money which is why I went and did curating by myself right because I was like you can't, if you, unless you have a vast amount of money or you're exceptional and there are people that make it work like you know Castor Gallery etc etc they're yeah. amazing um, then how do you how do you then have a your own gallery it's, right you know and how you know, two gall- so many galleries close every single year because they just can't sustain it right not that much art is actually bought yeah. And it's a fallacy. And then what do you do? You store it, and that's expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, so obviously the only place you can get galleries are on the outskirts. But then how are the collectors going to go there? So you then, you know, yeah. so there are many, many obstacles. Mm. Um, so which is why I had to laterally think around the common practice.
1: Okay. Um, and just sort of, just think about that sort of gas ceilings. It Was there a particular instance when you were going for a particular position somewhere where you just knew, um, again, like not knowing, na- naming names or like libeling or whatever, uh, like I don't want to... Um, yeah, uh, caught too much controversy with this sort of question, but I'm sort of interested with a specific thing where you could um, know this is something you really wanted, wanted, and you were qualified for it, but you just knew that you just weren't, you weren't going to get it, or that that particular position wouldn't go to someone in your in your. Yeah. Position.
0: Well, I mean, you know, I mean, it's very difficult to compete with people that come wear like Manolo Blancs to the gallery. <laughs>
1: you know right, I mean? like, right. You I know, I wear shoes from okay. Primark.
0: Do you know what I mean? Like, so. Right. <laughs> um, okay. So I think there's, you know, because obviously, if you're buying a very, very expensive work of art, Everything associated with it, the whole experience, is about value culture. of course. So you need to be assured that that gallery can pay that person that amount to be in that space. And of course they can afford those amazing shoes, because of course, you know. So there is an element where I think, and this might just be my paranoia, but, you know, I am a bit too scruffy. (laughs) <laughs> you know <laughs> I don't tend to dress up and this has always been an issue for me which is why I am like right. to be behind the scenes
1: yeah, yeah I mean <laughs> it makes sense uh, in the sense of like association if you're buying like a really expensive like artwork you want the whole experience yeah. to kind of, like, luxurious. it's not it's necessarily be, yeah. based on like merit or the person's knowledge of the particular uh, don't, per- get
0: yeah. I mean, don't, don't get me wrong I mean yeah. don't get me wrong there are the other thing about it is that mm. all these people because it's such a competitive industry right, to, right. to get a job like yeah. the amount of people that want to be in the job the amount of graduates there are which we'll go okay. into that can't get a position that's because these people are brilliant mm-hmm. you know not only are they beautiful but they are insanely talented they're insanely smart they've probably got about four PhDs and right. probably still a gallery assistant
1: yeah, uh, yeah you know yeah. what I mean
0: like it's an insanely competitive industry and also there's not much money in it
1: right but like
0: you're not gonna get paid 50 grand right you know you'll never yeah, yeah. get you know I've never been paid more than like 35k okay. in my entire career right, <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs>
1: you know okay um, yeah just to sort of um, just to sort of uh, finish up this sort of subject um, just give me maybe like one or two advantages and drawbacks for a contemporary artist selling their work in the private gallery system.
0: Advantages, yeah. um, you are part of a network. And mm. I think this is something that's really valuable. It's like, you need to know like where your artwork is positioned. You need other people to see it. By having a gallery representation, you've got the right people coming down. You probably have journalists to your work. You'll get a yeah. fan base, you know, that's yeah. super vital. Uh, you also understand the value of your work. And, you know, all of that is really, really important. Mm-hmm. The disadvantages are things like when you sell an artwork at certain galleries, you have to give 50% of your profits away. Right, okay. And so if you don't make very much, yeah. that takes away a lot of your profits. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, the gallery is having to pay for the storage, electricity, the curation, the staff, and da mm. da da So, you know, there are lots of disadvantages. And perhaps, you know, you don't necessarily want to have to make work to a deadline. Right. You know, if you're a creative um, practitioner and you're, you know, you're going through a slump, but you've got a show coming up. What do you do? Mm-hmm. Do you then make a bad body of work because you have a show coming up and you're yeah. not happy with it and then everybody falls out? Like this happens all the time.
1: Mm-hmm. You know. And also do you think working in the private gallery system you're required to make a certain type of work? Um, to feel like um, maybe an unsaid like obligation to the gallery because this is what's in vogue that may run contrary to your art- own artistic taste.
0: Yeah, or say, for example, you're an artist that had um, a body of work that everyone loved and maybe you want to move on from that. Yeah. But, you know, perhaps your gallery won't let you or if they do, then you'll lose your collector base. So you have to be very sensitive about um, the trajectory of your w- career path. Yeah. Um,
1: so just sort of moving on, we've, t- we've touched on it, but we'll going into a bit more sort of detail about it. So... Um, I guess I'm just reiterating what you sort of spoke about, but why did you, what was that point where you really decided to leave the mainstream um, gallery system and start cult projects in 2017 and exhibit emerging artists and establishing artists in abandoned spaces? And I guess, like, where did that idea come from that these abandoned spaces? when did that lightning sort of strike for you when was that moment you saw like this is something i want well, to get into
0: i mean it wasn't a new idea in a sense that like i've been to artist studios we had an artist that had a huge space on like right. euston road before it got developed and he made these enormous canvases and i was always really fascinated by art that wasn't in galleries hmm. like i don't know about you but like if you go into an art even a church with some really cool installation or like yeah. a cinema or something like way more interesting to me than, uh, and how the artists responds to it than just a white cube. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. You know, not all the time, but most of the time. And uh-huh. so the idea of pop-up shows wasn't novel, mm-hmm. um, but the idea of like doing it myself, I basically, it came about because when I left Goldsmiths, I was like, right, I want to do my own thing. I want to mm-hmm. show artists, I want to do shows, yeah. but I don't have a space. Yeah, yeah. You know, so then I was like, well, I'll do pop-up shows. Mm -hmm. And that is um, a much easier way, because you don't have the constant management. You know, if you're managing a gallery, your whole time is like managing the gallery. Mm -hmm. You're not actually able to do the creative part of it. And also the other thing that Goldsmith showed me is that there were so many amazing artists yeah you know that like graduate shows oh my god you go around there and you've got all these brilliant new ideas like amazing talents that have never been seen and all they're begging for is like somewhere to be seen mm-hmm. um so giving them a platform from the very beginning you never know who you're going to be supporting in the future
1: yeah 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 precisely um was there much resistance to you going out and doing this because you seem from what i can understand you seem very sort of headstrong very um determined <laughs> um flying in probably like a massive sort of it. Uh, headwind, but when you decided to sit out and, and do this, uh, I guess, like, what were the first sort of barriers or, th- or um, I guess, like bottlenecks did you account- encounter when you first, like, like, from like day one? What was the first sort of bottleneck you encountered? You know, I think, too?
0: if I'm honest with you, yeah, I mean, I've, there's not going to be any obstacles to me because I'm mm. not a threat to anybody. Like, right. you know, I'm basically all I'm doing is giving people a free space to show their work. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I don't think there was any sort of, you know, the opposite actually happened. I think if you mm. go out and do something by yourself, as you probably are aware, like yes, it's amazing how much people are supportive. Mm-hmm. You know, All of my friends came and supported me every time I did a show. Like, And I think that is how you, that network gets built. So, like, if anybody's thinking about doing something and they're scared to, just do it.
1: Right, and then I just want to just jump into some of the shows that you've done, which I've written down in my scraggly handwriting here. Um, so We Sing, The Body Electric was one, Visual Tonic was another, and then Rituals for a New Regime, and then there was Earth Eaters. So, between that sort of collective body of work that you did with Coal Projects, is there any one that sort of stands out there um, for you in particular?
0: Well, they all responded to different things. Um, like I said earlier, like as yeah. a solo practitioner, you can respond really quickly. So, Ritual for a New Regime was because I was given, uh, well, I was allowed to do an exhibition, this XM ex, um, mi 6 um, car park, M.O.D. Oh, basically, oh,
1: wow. yeah. and it was
0: during lockdown. So I was like, mm-hmm. well, how do you make this like, car park into a Covid-free exhibition space? Mm-hmm. I was like, well, well, let's just put the huge sculptures outside. Yeah. So we got these enormous sculptures outside and we have got these amazing performers and they sort of responded to them. And the idea was like, what happens after COVID? Which way is it going to get better? Is it going to become something better or worse? Or is it going be to the, be the same? And then we had this amazing article, Rebecca Bellantoni, that basically was against the idea of something being a regime, which is totally correct. Like, why yeah. do we want it to go back to normal? So yeah. that was a direct response to COVID, and we filmed it and we did it, did it all um, online. Yeah. So we filmed it with a gimbal, did it all in a day, and then launched it on like, Instagram, and yeah. then had like different like, times for performance and stuff. So it's about rethinking the exhibition space yeah. um, and like, responding to our current situation exactly right, right, well, right. at the time.
1: Yeah, and uh, I guess like the one that I sort of read about, which I was reading an article, um, we sing uh, the um, Body Electric. You sort of touched upon the idea of like capitalizing or capitalizing on like identities or the capitalization of identities and that being a very thin um, line about wanting to be part of a progressive movement of giving people a voice but they're not in turn turning them into like commodities in a sense like they could Yeah, well, I mean,
0: that show in particular, so I think, again, a very formative experience Mm. with Goldsmiths, is like, again, because I was much older, I don't think we really understand, you know, again, gender theory is changing so much all the time, but I was fortunate enough to be surrounded by some amazing people that were very um, generous with their time and educated me to a certain extent, and when you actually realise, what I came down to is, like, bodies are bodies no matter what, and and the exhibition title is taken from um, the poet, uh... I I Walt Whitman. Well Whitman, that yeah. was it. And so basically is the, the poet the, poet, the, poet, the, the poetry, what is it poetry thing that it was based on? Yeah it was all about parts of the flesh, and mm-hmm. so basically because he was gay, he couldn't refer to his lover. Yeah. So he just talked about like shoulders and elbows, it was mm. incredibly intimate, but it removed all gender from it, so he was able to talk about his lover publicly. Yeah. So that's what that show was about. It was all female. Mm. Yeah. But I really sort of wish I hadn't done just sis.
1: Women. That's what you mentioned. Yeah, yeah. so
0: that, that was a big regret of mine afterwards. I, I wish I'd opened it up, but I think that just shows you how rapidly things are changing anyway. Yeah, yeah. like six months later, I was like, damn it, I got that wrong. Right. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, because things do, do change so sort of um, rapidly, and I guess like people sort of taste of what they're sort of pushing against rapidly sort of changes as mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. Um, so just moving on to topic three the high street and the artist. So, what can you tell me about the creative process? that took you from being the Creative Coal Projects, which ended up with you becoming the founder of Haifa Studios in 2021?
0: Again, uh, so basically, I um, it was all a response to the, the current situation. So Haifa yeah. was started in a lockdown mm-hmm. and you know, basically I was trying to work out ways, much like the car park, how do you engage in culture? In a, in a pandemic, and I was yeah. like, Well, there's all these empty shops. What happens if you just walk past a shop and something is happening in it? Yeah. So basically, when I was uh, doing cold projects, I kept asking landlords to use their spaces, and it mm-hmm. was really hard because, like, landlords think that artists are squatters. Right.
1: You right. know, um,
0: so basically, I decided that if you could set up an organization that was in the middle of landlords and artists, and mm-hmm. meant that landlords didn't have to deal with the artists, and yeah. the artists could deal with them, um, that didn't have to deal with the landlords. So we became the point in between. Mm-hmm.
1: And, uh, What was the sort of, I guess, like, with this sort of charity, like, setting it up and actually convincing, like, landlords, what, when you approach a landlord, what is that particular encounter, that first initial contact like?
0: Um, combination. I mean, like, there are, there's a variety of landlords, like, there are a variety of artists. So, um, with certain landlords, they love the arts and they want to support it. Right. Um, certain landlords want to generate footfall, mm-hmm. um, so that's another thing. They want to make sure that you know the lights are still on, yeah. and also the longer that property is empty, um, the more problems are happening in society around it. There's more. It's called the broken windows theory. So right. if you have one broken window, you're likely to get loads more around it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, so lots of landlords actually do want it. They just don't know how to get the right people in. So what we do is basically mm-hmm. when we do the open call, we keep it super simple. Yeah. Um, it's not like the Arts Council and we basically judge it on well we do a shortlist and then it's judged by including the landlord yeah. maybe the council and like a cultural organisation and okay. they basically say who's the best person for this space based on merit yeah and public program yeah yeah, and need and so yeah. and locality too so those four things means that we match make yeah, yeah. the right artists for the space
1: oh, I think we sort of spoke it briefly a little bit outside in terms of your being like the, the founder you mentioned that you don't necessarily have much to say did i say in terms of actually what it puts on you trying to take a step take a step yeah. back from that I mean, why why is that
0: well i mean i think it's a bit like what you said earlier about decentralization like i resent gatekeepers and it's right. like actually you know, as much as curation is about you saying what you think is best and then other people agreeing with you right yes um yeah. you know i think ultimately one person i often get this wrong like my taste is so extreme yeah you know? like, <laughs> like i think some people love it a lot of people hate it but actually if you've got a series of people doing it and it's based on the things I mentioned earlier, you actually end up with the right artist. So it's a formula. You yeah. get the right person, but I don't decide. The trustees decide. And they've got a much more balanced way of looking at the world. And right. there's multiple ones of them. So they talk it out, they figure it out. You know, so it's not just one type of artist per,
1: per space. So does that give you a little breathing room? Say, and this is an interesting point I wanted to raise in terms of the works that's shown that somebody put in a really, like, controversial, like, mm-hmm. show. It dealt with, I don't know. I'm trying to think. Pick a controversial sort of, like, thing, and there was a huge, like, blowback on it. I guess, does that give you, like, a buffer to say, like, well, we gave them a sort of space, but I'm not responsible for the actual content away, or do you take some responsibility for no
0: that? so it doesn't yeah so basically when the artists supply they tell us what they're going to do in the space and right. they are obliged to do what they said they were gonna do yeah so they can't say um, we were gonna do a show that's really great for kids and it's this that and the other mm-hmm. and then actually become totally racist do you, know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> you know so I mean yeah. if they did do that we would immediately kick them out of the space with no you know basically no notice like you're yeah. not out yeah. so we do know what goes in in the space mm-hmm. when they get accepted onto the space right
1: Um, and we did talk a bit about the broken window um, syndrome so in the aftermath of like COVID-19 a dominance of like online shopping and for you why is the high street so important why is it important that we still congregate in these areas as a community
0: well I mean where else are we doing things face to face I mean like I think it's um, a real travesty that I think to be honest with you we've got commercial like shopping wrong for such a long time Mm -hmm. actually it should be about makers and it's like why don't we go and get stuff from people actually making the things you know like in, in independence Again, not the only way, but it could be more part of the offer. Yeah, um, you know, online shopping is so easy, but where can you go and meet somebody? You mm-hmm. used to have your local shop, you used to have your own network in your own yeah, little yeah. village, and a lot of these villager shops are now gone because mm. you know there's the Tories put through the rule of being able to change these shops into housing.
1: Yes. Right. Yeah, yeah. So
0: that's a that's a astonishing that went through. You know mm. these beautiful shops. You know like like similar to sort of Camden Passage could yeah. be turned into houses. Yeah, like, yeah. Yeah. Like who would do that? It's like when people turn pubs into houses. Mm. It's like no.
1: Yeah. And <laughs> when um, we did talk about it, and I guess we have to be careful talking around this sort of subject. But American candy stores in Oxford Street, um, pension funds buying up ex music studios and turning them into luxury apartments, which nobody can. Um, Mm-hmm. afford uh, is there any particular sort of instances where you've engaged in a particular space again being very careful that you've encountered somebody who is, has a particular sort of space and maybe not have like the best intentions or they use like, is yeah any sort of like- i
0: mean i think it's quite common knowledge with the candy shops that everybody's mm. like what are these and if you haven't yeah, yeah. if you're not really clued up in it i'll tell you mm. um basically it's been seen that these candy shops often don't even have tills in them or the food is like out of date and yeah. Stuff. yeah yeah so these are like fictitious shops Mm. Um, and I mean I don't know you know I don't know basically how it's allowed and like it's probably because there's so many shell companies you can't work out who's going to close them down yeah um, but and I guess maybe it's better than having nothing there but in reality like these spaces should be community spaces yeah um, and all they're doing by having these shops in there is basically taking away council tax money you know? yeah yeah, yeah. Um, so that's you know it's, it's a it's a it's not just them there's loads of people that do the same thing you know there's always fronts that are there to sort of uh, you know Whitewash, cash or et etc. Right, yeah,
1: yeah, it's money laundering, and yeah. all that. Um, okay, so just taking it from a uh, an approach of a landlord. Um, Say so one that's listening right now—they've got a space in Kings Cross. They've got an empty shop. Mm-hmm. They fill out the online application form on Hyper for Studios' website. They get selected for a month um exhibition, or um, in terms of the process that you've um, described, what are the actual practical sort of like next steps? What can they can they expect? Like an arm and art student on their <laughs> on their on their doorstep with a That's amazing. So
0: yeah. yeah, basically what happens is that they sign a lease with us. We do an open call, and the open call is just particularly on like Instagram and our website, right? And we sort of socially social media the hell out of it. It, yeah, which basically means that the only people that apply are from their area so we are potentially working with a landlord in Kings Cross so mm-hmm. keep your eyes open um, and the idea is then that we'd have like an application process not very long like a few weeks and then, you know, we, we decide on that selection process and we manage the whole thing. So the landlords yeah. can be as hands on or hands off as they like. Yeah. And they can also sort of specify they might have a certain, certain demographic or part of the community they want us to interact with. So okay. that will be part of the public programme as right. well. Yeah, yeah. So we'll do an open call saying, we would like you to interact with like maybe the elderly, you know, or something right, like this, right, right. Um, depending on what
1: is suitable for the area yeah um and then also i just want to touch on business rates mm-hmm. like how much are they and why are they important and why for a landlord is it great to get relief on business rates when they're empty
0: it's well i mean place. the relief business rate obviously is like you know landlords don't want to basically the way it works is that business rates are a tax on a loss of income right right so that's quite massive if you think about that yeah, you're yeah. losing money anyway mm-hmm. and then you have to pay even more but the problem is like it's a major source of income for the government and central and local government so it's really important that business rate exists because actually that's how like council, like taxes paid for right so obviously you know you don't want to remove it completely and they're talking about different ways of doing it because the problem is if it's too high if business rates are too high you're not going to get new providers you're not going to get those little independent shops coming along yeah and i think that's really going to be very problematic and i think they're talking about lots of different ways to address this um, but equally, you know, the, the incentive to like, have like occupation in these spaces to, is to, sort of, you know, let, let these spaces be filled in the interim. Like, yeah. you know, we can't just have many empty shops forever sitting there. So mm. we hope to sort of be that people, those people that sort of bridge that gap.
1: Right. Yeah. The transition, sort of transition between maybe a more step of a business actually moving into this. Exactly. Um, it also sort of strikes me, I went to Margate recently, um, and I went to the Turner Contemporary but even walking around like Margate they're literally just like you'll have uh I don't know I want for a better word sort of a, his, a hipsterish sort of like shop mm-hmm. and then you'll just like have this like cavernous sort of like black hole that used to be like a a Debenhams and something else and it does the feel of the area does feel sort of um, depressed mm-hmm. where you can have very ex, two extremes very like close to mm-hmm. to each other and there's something I'm constantly reminded of where, where I live like in, in Bedford as well just these like gaping um holes in the high street which do make the area feel um depressed Mm -hmm. um so i guess like do you feel um like so if you've got uh like these spaces for art and and creation um, is there any in, in your sort of like program where you might uh, I don't know, get like a pop-up like bakery or, like, or is it just particularly just sort of like food um, um, sorry, just particularly sort of art-based sort of like things or does, does you, do you envision maybe your reach being a bit sort of like broader Okay, so the uh,
0: so so charities are the, we're a charity for a particular reason right. which is that, you know, eventually I'd love this to sort of be a sort of Airbnb where landlords and artists can find each other Okay, right, right, right. Um, But that's a long, long way off and I sound completely naive when I say it However, the point about charity is that, you know, if this was to be a commercial operation, you'd care less yeah. about what went to these spaces. Right. Um, so I think we do that to make sure there's an, art, there's an integrity as to what we're doing, and it's all about community benefit. But charities have purposes, yeah. and our purposes are particularly the creative art. So mm-hmm. at the moment, unless it was an artist dealing with food, we wouldn't be able to.
1: Okay, yeah. But yeah,
0: there right. are amazing organisations that are doing something similar. So we've got great friends with them, um, the RCKA Architects, and they've yeah. done this amazing thing called Nourish Hub. Right. Okay. And that is where that you get to make f- free food for free. It's free lessons, and right. the other side is that you get food for free. Yeah, yeah. And it's an amazing uh, uh, thing over in uh, w- West London.
1: That they've done just before we jump into them because I've got a question about those, mm-hmm. uh, their architecture practice. I just want to just jump into a little bit why it's so important for like mart- uh, artists, I should say, like um, Molly um Sedgwick, uh, Paul Hawkins, uh, Claire Packham, to be able to work in these large rent free creative spaces. Um, and I guess, like, could you point to a particular example where a local community has been enriched from your, from your experience? I mean, obviously, they have been, but I'm just thinking yeah. of a particular one.
0: Well, I mean, I think. A bit like, you know, I was, t- I was telling you about, like, I was sort of scared to do it by myself, right? Yeah. You know, and I think it's only because one guy in particular was like, look, don't worry, if something goes wrong, mm-hmm. the only thing that you've lost is that you don't, you know, you'll gain some photographs of it, and that's all you need, that's your start. Yeah. And I think what we're hoping to provide is space to experiment. Yeah. Like, if you have to pay for stuff, you stop doing things. And it's like, actually, mm-hmm. creativity at its best is where you're not under pressure and you're able to think and you're able to try new ideas out and an innovation comes from that. Right. Um, so, you know, you've seen Paul totally flourish. He's had that unit now for a year and he's like brought in, he's doing sold out events in his former news agent. Right. Yeah, you know, yeah. He's got this amazing men's group that come and talk to each other because they've lost their community space. Right. Um, and it's amazing what these people do with dead space. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the whole thing where the name comes from. It's about like, you know, sort of the mycelial network that turns dead space into like the most, you know, right. fertile ground. Yeah, yeah. And the same with Molly, like, you know, she was a, she's a brilliant artist, but she was painting in a caravan and mm-hmm. then like she did this show in Eastbourne and now she's got like, she's constantly having shows, you know, yeah. she's got an amazing collector base, you know, mm-hmm. like, so I think just having a little, somebody to sort of back you and sort of do what the gallery system does, yeah. which is like, we think you're great, do mm-hmm. what you've got to do and sort of give you that round of applause mm-hmm. to make you do that practice is the thing that's vital.
1: Um, and you just raised an interesting point that I would like to sort of cover very quickly. Like the drawbacks for you, the fear, like the things that could potentially go wrong, that could sense give you a sense of like paralysis from paralysis from doing something like this. Mm-hmm. How did you overcome them and what sort of fears did you potentially have? Because I guess like this and there, this even though it's been kind of, pop-ups have kind of been done before, but yeah. this is the first time you've kind of
0: yeah. done them. I mean, the fear's always there, but I mean, what is the fear of? The fear is of failure and mm-hmm. like, who cares really if you fail? I mean, like, I mean, it's awful and I'm obviously like, you know, you know I, I'm doing this not for myself. I'm doing this because I, I feel like I owe it to all the artists out there that I could possibly support. Yeah. But, you know, the, the fear is always there. I fear every day that we're not going to get enough spaces. I fear every day that you know, the artists, you know, won't be as happy as I hope they are, you know, but um, if you don't, if you don't flap, you can't fly. True,
1: very true. Um, So I just want to jump into the, uh, um, to the Cultural High Streets, the Oxford Street Case Study, um, which is a collaboration between the um, RCKA Architecture firm. I hope that's how you pronounce that, Um, what made them the best people to realise your vision for turning empty spaces into creative hubs?
0: Um, so they're amazing anyway, um, so they're constantly, they, they're architects with a heart and there's lots of people that are doing this now but they often turn schools into like really vibrant spaces, they really think about community and how to do it mm. and that like, they can turn a space around like super quickly and they're like brilliant thinkers. So when we came to them, we showed them the model. We just yeah. sort of used this sort of um, model of like an Oxford Street building because a lot of these buildings are still empty. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you know, lots of people don't know what to do with them. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, we can't just turn more and more of these places into flats. Like what yeah. are we going to come to central London for, you know? Exactly. Yeah. So we were trying to think of an alternative and like the, the model that we came up with was basically get one of those buildings, break it down. Well, how cool would it be if like mm-hmm. the HMV building became like a, a club, like yeah, a mega yeah. club? Yeah, you yeah. could give it to free, to like Corsica Studios or yeah. whoever to come and do their own thing, generate their own income. Mm-hmm. And you'd have a mega club in the heart of London. It would yeah. be great because there's no one there, so you don't have to worry about making noise. Right, right. But I think the idea is to like think about these spaces in different ways and they were able to
1: come up with a way to manifest that. And was that, in that case study, was that the largest sort of space you'd envision having? Because how big can these sort of spaces go? How, how many people can you occupy as...
0: Yeah. so the way that the model works like basically it's just me and a couple of like um, people doing part time yeah but the model is that anybody that we give the space to is like they basically work for us while they're in the spaces and we can like harbour so to speak yeah um like organisations, mm-hmm. so it might be that we have like a whole office block and just give it different floors to different organisations that need it. Okay. Like maybe they couldn't afford their space after COVID, but yeah. we can as long as they're not for profit. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, then we can just give it to a charity, for example, right, that has no, the same right. things as us, and they yeah. can have forty artists on one floor. You know, so I think it's it, the, the model's is entirely scalable. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just we need to work our way up to show people that we can do it. You know. Right. I
1: see. I see. Um. So just moving on to topic four, the business of charity. Mm-hmm. so uh, say there's another person that has an idea for a charity um, and they don't they've never experienced it And I just sort of relate this to hyper Studios. so what are the benefits of hyper studios being a registered charity could you think of like three or four things that make that uh, a good a kind of like a good thing an easier thing to do this kind of work well
0: I mean the first thing is that you know I you know I, I love the art world it's a brilliant exotic dark beast um, and I think by being a charity and being like super accountable means that landlords and uh, councils can trust us. Yeah. You know, like we're a charity, so we're incredibly over governed. We have so much admin to do. We have to mm. constantly say what we're doing correctly, and it's like, it's it's a total bullock if I'm honest. But at the same time, it does yeah. make sure that we're doing our job. Right. Right. We are accountable to the yeah, public. Yeah. And I think that was really important to me to be not a for-profit, mm-hmm. is to prove that we have the altruistic thing. We are there for the artists to do the right, right. job.
1: Yeah. Um, and does that make it in terms of, because what people tend to forget is like, charity like is a business, it's owned and run like a business, mm-hmm. and I think that's hard people to get their head around. Um, and there are sort of like overheads, and you do have to pay people, and there are mm-hmm. um, things. So in that sense, um, say taking like coal projects, I'm not that wasn't for-profit, but that was like a private endeavor versus mm-hmm. the charitable one. Are there sort of like, I guess that there's sort of gift day, there are things that write offs, is there sort of stuff on the business end where you're able, where it makes it a little easier? I mean,
0: you know, absolutely. I mean, I still, I mean, this I'm, you know, this charity isn't, it's not even a year old yet. Yeah. So um, we're, we're very, very young. Like we've mm-hmm. just been focusing on getting spaces, putting the artists into spaces and doing that. But now we're looking into all this other side of stuff, which is like fundraising and blah, 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 blah. Yeah, so yeah. we've got some potential really exciting donors that are coming forward, which is great. Um, but yeah bottom line is that we, we need to grow we need to grow fast because the charity sector you know it's 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 amazing but we're not yet playing in it properly right
1: you know? yeah and, it, and I imagine it's a very competitive um, industry to be in to be honest like yeah. charities so many different things pulling in uh, so many different yeah, directions. Exactly. Um so I understand that you're looking for more creative professionals to join Hyfer Studios as trustees so mm-hmm. what is a trustee and what do they do so you're
0: right about um, charities sort of being like companies so trustees are basically like your board Yeah. they're the people you're accountable to um so basically even though I came up with the idea of hyper studios and all this stuff it's not mine mm-hmm. this is the best thing It's decentralized right yeah Um so actually it's the trustees that are in charge they make okay. all the final decisions you know I report to them they say which way we go they decide who goes into the spaces so I work for them right and that's what these guys do and so like we are looking for more trustees whether it's like landlords or whether it's people with property experience or maybe it's like um, ch- charity sector experience or maybe it's just like art museums whatever it might be right so because they help the organisation flourish. Yeah. They, they are entrusted with us,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and it's that they're you know they're liable if anything goes wrong as well. So it's very much about um, you know pushing us forward.
1: Right, and I understand from the website you are. Is it like a particular? Are you looking for people like below the age of twenty eight? I guess like you're trying to recruit. Well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, it, it, it's both.
0: It's both. So yeah. we you know we we pride ourselves on being like we're a very um we're a very young charity with yeah. very young, cool trustees. Right, um, and you know, it doesn't mean we want a whole mix.
1: Yeah, yeah. You know,
0: we don't want to be. Um, We need to be responsive.
1: Right, yeah, to what's going on. And I guess we'll have different perspectives. So this may be, um, yeah, this may be like a hard question to answer, maybe a controversial one, I don't know. Um, But if you had five minutes alone with the Secretary of State uh, for Digital Culture, Media and Sport, Nadine Doris, what would you say to her?
0: I mean, I would just basically beg her to just help us fill empty spaces with the creatives across the country. I mean, like, with Arts Council funding being cut left, right and centre, this is the easiest way to support people. Yeah. Like, the supporting kind of giving people free rent, free utilities, free bills. And all it does is benefit community and landlords. Like, that's, so that's what I would say. I would, um, I'd just beg her to try and make this more public policy. Like, you should definitely have more culture and communities across the country so everybody feels they can have it on their doorstep.
1: Right. Um... And I guess, like, well, I guess with the Conservative uh, government, they have gouged, they have gouged uh, the, the arts. <laughs>
0: did he, did, he hit, did he, <laughs> Reece mogg said he wanted to scrap the Arts Council? Yeah, yeah, they <laughs> gouging, they're, like, chop, like chopping out, it's like and you only think it's, like, crazy, there's, yeah. There's like, so many jobs would be on the line, like...
1: And just, I, I think also, like, such a short sighted view, because essentially you think Rhys-Mogg, he's in drums full, full of, like, 17th-century, like, masters. Like mm-hmm. He's surrounded by art and culture. Yeah. But it's good for him, but it's not good for the rest of us and the rest of our sort of uh, exactly. enrichment. Um, other than that, is there anything, any... Uh, I guess I'm i trying to think, anything... Um, is there any, like, one particular thing that you think Nadine, Nadine Doris today, is there any pressing sort of issue, just some sort of, like, tweak or just something that you, she could, like, action today that might be really sort of beneficial? Um,
0: well, yeah, I, I mean, like, so, you know, right now, the, you know, the, they're trying to make it... So they're trying to rejuvenate the high street and I think mm. what they're trying to do is push through a thing which is basically saying that they're going to force landlords whatever are, are properties that have been empty, to put them on auction. Now right. what I would say is that the creatives that I know, I started this because I didn't have a studio. I couldn't afford a studio, I couldn't right. afford a gallery. Yeah, yeah. So suddenly turning around and be like, Great, you can have this space, but you still have to pay loads of money for it, I think mm-hmm. is a bit like naive. Yeah. Particularly in towns which are really deprived and have no jobs, mm-hmm. no money, no nothing. Yeah. Um so you know, I would definitely say so, like maybe consider a change of policy which is more like if we give those spaces up, then yeah. everybody benefits. You right, know? Right. I think that would be the main thing, instead of forcing landlords to do something that ultimately might be quite detrimental to the 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 high street anyway
1: okay um interesting so um, I happened to catch the tail end of a discussion on charity the charity sector on television a few weeks ago and it raised like an interesting point. Like a panel a panel member said that the most effective charities are ones that put themselves out of business. So what's the future of uh, the future of Hyfer Studios over the next ten years?
0: So um we are we need to rapidly expand quite quickly. Like we you know, we've had like thirty sites, we've supported like hundred and forty artists done hundreds and hundreds of public events. Yeah. Um and I I think we're all pretty much on the cusp of burning out, and I think you know, that's because there's like two or three of us, yeah. like may- maybe basically one or two. Mm. And, you know, we're managing a lot. So we're trying to right now raise money to recruit a property manager. We want to create a-, a narcissist manager role. And basically we want to operate more across the country. Yeah. Um, you know, the best, the best thing about this model is actually there's more empty spaces and places that are more deprived, which mm. means that we can give opportunities to those that really need it. Yeah. You know, so that's the thing that we really want to focus on. We're also applying for NPO status as well, which basically mean, we just have to grow. We've only been operating for a year, yeah. so it's like grow or die. Right, right. Um, so we need to
1: expand rapidly, very soon. And just to make people aware, some of the sites I've noticed on the So you've had places in Bristol, I believe?
0: Yeah, we've got like five units in a shopping centre in Bristol. We've got Penrith in Cumbria, yep. Dudley, mm-hmm. Derby, yep. Southport, mm-hmm. Eastbourne, Horsham, Catford, Islington. Yep. Yeah, so all over the shop, but there's literally nowhere we wouldn't go.
1: Right, right, right. Um, and then so I just want to kind of like wrap up a little bit and ask you what's your dream mon- what's your dream project? I should say. If uh, money and time wasn't, <laughs> if money and time, uh, if time and money wasn't an issue for you.
0: I actually think Hyfra is my dream project. Yeah. I just I just want it. I just want to be able to provide more spaces. Yeah. You know. I think like I've I created this business for this charity in order to mm. you know do what I love and I do love it. But I get very um, frustrated when I can't do enough. Right. And, and that's the thing that really that's that's the fear. That's the fear.
1: And then you just mentioned <laughs> potentially about turning it into an Airbnb style. Yeah, decentralised. Um, yeah. like, I don't
0: want to be in the middle of this. Like I would love it if landlords a bit like you know mm. Uber they could go, great, these artists are amazing, let's give them free space. I mean, the dream would be ultimately where you pay artists to be in these spaces. Right, yeah, Like, Why why do you pay performers to bring people down to a space instead of not paying artists? Like, Mm. you know, I think the logic of getting artists to pay, obviously if they're not very good, there are loads of bad artists, don't get me wrong, you shouldn't pay all artists, (laughs) that's insane. Right. But there are some amazing artists that like, you know, it's proven Mm. that wherever artists are, property value is up by 4.4%. Yeah. Look at Hackney Wick. Yeah. Yeah. So why aren't we paying them to be there?
1: Mm. Yeah, yeah. Like, it's nuts. Um, and just I think so this is a bit unfair because I guess like it's asking someone what who their sort of favourite child is um, if they're a parent but is there any particular artist or artwork that you've throughout doing the sort of High for Charity and coal Projects the one that you think is um, this, uh, I guess it's resonated with you the most is what I think is what I'm trying to sort of say uh...
0: It's a really tough question.
1: Because um, I guess you don't want to upset the other people you don't say.
0: <laughs> no, I mean, you know, like, you know, I really, really... I mean, we were lucky when we found Molly the first time yeah. around. Like, you know, she, she was just such a superstar. And, like, also... She did things like she knew how to use Instagram. She really cool videos. Yeah. Like, she she's absolutely just a total dream. Mm. Um, you know, Dion Kitson, who I'm seeing tonight, uh, yeah, yeah. He is absolutely brilliant. This guy is like a future art like future famous artist. Like okay. I mean, he already is pretty, pretty, pretty famous. Yeah, um, but he's an absolute legend. You know, he's a real diamond, diamond geezer. And like now, these guys are I consider them sort of family. Right. And um, so that's the nicest thing about this is that sort of once we've placed somebody,
1: we're always in touch with them afterwards. Yeah. Um. And I guess like, oh, it's, oh, two minutes or so, so I, um, I think um, sort of thinking about that, about the artists and you just mentioned about how savvy would you say if somebody's going to go for the sort of space in terms of their social media, like what would you say in terms of how can the artist make best use of the space? What three things would you say to an artist you get into the sort of space? What are the three things they can really like? it's really
0: again it's really tricky Hmm. so like if you know again different areas need different artists and you know if you're like if you're in london we get like 400 applications per site right yeah yeah um if we're in the middle of nowhere we get significantly less and also you know it might be that somebody is a landscape painter yeah a landscape painter in catford wouldn't go down very well but a landscape painter in like the midlands or in in scotland could go down really really well so I think it really depends. But from my perspective, because we're such a small organisation and we pretend we're much bigger on the sa- surface of things, if you're good at Instagram, it really helps. Right, okay. <laughs> because, you know, the more that you push us, the more we push you. And it's all about visibility and right, it's right. about educating the public. Again, it's our charity's purpose. So like, yeah. We're trying to show people what you do. Right, okay. And we're trying to sort of promote arts to the community and like not gatekeep.
1: So, yeah, so the more socially involved they are on social yeah, media, pushing exactly. themselves is great. So just lastly, where can people check out Hyper Studios, find out about upcoming events, and follow you on social media?
0: So we have a website, www.hyperstudios.com and also Instagram is my main love. Right. Uh, so yeah, Instagram's yeah, yeah. a really good one, um, and then also Facebook and Twitch and all that jazz.
1: Okay, cool. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much. There are all my questions I've had for you uh, today. I really appreciate your time and thank uh, talking you. about Hyper Studios. It's been amazing. Thanks so much, Don. No thank worries. You. Thank you.